Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an ag arts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. A chiropractor, a visual artist, a farmer, and a minister all walk into a podcast. We had a great response to episode 42, the podcast about Amish home butchering. Audience members came forward with their stories of procuring and processing meat and fish. So we're putting them on the air this week, letting them take the stage. Our first storyteller is Rebecca Hawkins Valadez, a visual artist, musician, and chef from Belleville, Illinois. She weaves a beautiful tale of finding a story that she wrote when she was 13 years old. The piece connects to her mother, her family, and her wider community. Rebecca Hawkins Valadez. My name is Rebecca Hawkins Valadez, and I am a visual artist, percussionist, and have been known to dabble in puppets. I live in Southern Illinois with my husband, Sal, and our two dogs. I grew up in Milledgeville, a little town of about a thousand folks in the northwest corner of Illinois. My little village lies on the very edge of the Driftless area, and looks more like Iowa or Wisconsin than what many people think Illinois looks like. Lots of farms where farmers raise livestock and row crops to feed their animals, not so much to sell the grain. My mom and dad worked as tenant farmers or hired hands to have housing provided so they could save money to buy their own home. My dad was also a cheesemaker full-time, making Swiss cheese for Kraft, and my mom worked full-time running the household. After leaving home and going out in the world, I led a very nomadic life. When my mother passed away in the late 80s in Illinois, I traveled back there from the Pacific Northwest to be of help to my dad. The first night I was home, I went up to my old room to sleep. Before I turned in for the night, I opened an old hope chest in that room to see what might be inside. There were lots of photos of our family, various bits of memorabilia, but there was a box marked Becky's stuff in my mom's handwriting. Inside was another little box, the original box of a pair of baby shoes. And in there was my christening dress, my bonnet, one booty, a lock of my hair from my first haircut, my mother's senior yearbook, 
and a folded up piece of paper that said, Butchering Story by Becky. I wrote that story when I was 13 years old through the eyes of my four-year-old self. I would like to share that story with you now. I'm not really sure just what woke me that morning. I thought it was a gunshot or maybe two. At four, four and a half years old, I was pretty sure what a gun sound was like. My dad did a little hunting in the ditch across the field in front of our house for rabbits, pheasants, and occasional squirrel. However, the discharging of firearms not being a regular occurrence, out of my warm bed, I jumped and raced down the long hall of our cold old farmhouse to get a peek at what was happening. I grabbed my one-step stool from the bathroom, the one I used to reach the sink to brush my teeth. I placed it on the floor beneath the round window at the end of the hall that looked north toward the barn. Through the mist and fog of that cold morning, I don't know if it was fall or spring, I can't recall, and I saw what explained the shots. I saw my dad and our landlord, H.H., and his father, H.H. Sr., a spry old man of about 80. They had a fire going under a large pot that was steaming. On either side of the pot were two crisscross poles and another large pole across the top joining the two. The three men were tying up something on the ground. As I stood looking through the window, I saw my dad throw a rope over the top of the pole, and the three of them started pulling a big, dark something off the ground. The sun was starting to rise a bit over the horizon now, in carnival pinks and blues. The dark black mass, the big, dark something, started twisting on the rope and revealed its silhouette. There was no mistaking the shape the ears, the snout, it was Blanche, the pig. The other dark mass on the ground was W.C., her pal in the pig pen. This scene I looked at on this cold morning in Illinois, a child of four or five, did not frighten me or make me sad. Blanche and W.C. came home with us as piglets from H.H.'s farm, riding on my brother and my lap in the back of my dad's 55 Chevy. We knew from an early age that any animals we fed, with the exception of our dog Duke or the barn cats, were fair game for the dinner table. But prior to this, it had been chickens or ducks, neither lovable creatures and never anything this big. I returned my one-step stool to the bathroom, gave a quick brush of my teeth, and headed downstairs. In the kitchen, there was a great deal of activity. My mom and Mrs. H.H. were cooking up sausage, bacon, and ham. In a cast-iron skillet on top of the wood stove were cottage-fried potatoes keeping warm. There was cornbread, biscuits, and my mom's cinnamon rolls and they were starting to mix up enough eggs to feed the town. They were oblivious to me, except for old Grandma H. She was sitting near the stove, smoking a pipe, dressed in her usual attire of men's clothes. She was scribbling notes on paper. She had wonderful blue eyes, like you might see in a wild horse or dog. 
She had whiskers too, but they were soft. All that combined with the sweet smell of her tobacco, her indifference to what was expected of women at that time. At our first meeting, we were friends. Knowing at this point, save for her, that I was as invisible as a ghost, I got into my outdoor clothes and headed toward that steaming pot over the fire. They saw me coming, and my father called out to me, not a bit concerned at the carnage I would see. The others were stopped in their tracks. They had no idea how experienced I was at slaughter. I watched my dad behead chickens and ducks, and after the initial shock and a calming slice of sugar bread, I was all in. My dad started giving me directions and asking questions. Does your mom have the basement ready? Did she bleach it down? Ask if there are enough shrouds, and is that darn cat or kitten still down there? Becky, you go move them to the barn. Priscilla, the new mom of six little kittens, got moved. My brother, still sound asleep upstairs, didn't notice that a family of seven had taken my place in the bed. He just yawned and curled toward the warmth. And me, I was hungry. And down in the kitchen, there was suddenly an awful lot of people there. When I finished reading it that night, I folded it carefully and put it back in the box. I shed some more tears over my mother's death, but I also smiled because she had put that little box together for me. That box of Becky's stuff went back to Oregon with me, and it made at least four cross-country moves and went with me from my first marriage to my present one and did its share of traveling there as well. It's always been the first thing I packed and the first thing I unpacked to put in safekeeping. I read it to my husband a few years after we were married, and he's been pestering me ever since to submit it somewhere. I guess he finally got his wish. Thanks so much for listening. Next, we have a story from Denny Kuhn, a minister in Ankeny, Iowa. Denny grew up near Fremartintown, and the podcast connects him to home. He has been a big supporter of Buggy Land, so we thank him and welcome him with a liver story of his own. Mary's recent broadcast about Braunschweiger reminded me of the Saturday nights when our mother fixed liver as the main meat for supper. I'm sure mom was trying to feed six children as economically as possible. Plus, our father did actually enjoy beef liver, but then he also liked oysters and chicken gizzards, which makes him an outlier regarding good cuisine as far as I'm concerned. Even though it seemed like we ate liver often, thanks to dad and food budgets, I never really acquired a taste. To make matters worse, we had a rule at our house that if you wanted to go to the Saturday night movies, which cost 25 cents in the 1950s, you had to eat all of your supper, which of course presented a dilemma on liver night. However, Mr. Hines came to the rescue as I learned to slather ketchup over the fried liver in order to survive the meal, thereby 
gaining permission to go to a, the Tarzan movie where I knew the 10 cent popcorn would help mitigate the liver taste. Mary says Braunschweiger's delicious. Who am I to argue? I've never tried it. But I am willing to give it a try. But I think I'll need some ketchup close by in case I need it for rescue. And I still enjoy going to the movies and eating popcorn without, of course, the lingering taste and smell of liver. Larry Harris, an organic farmer near Atlantic, Iowa, remembers farrowing pigs on his wedding day, then caring for his hogs and following the process all the way through to the end. Denise O'Brien and I got married on the first day of spring in 1976 at 6.30 in the morning because that's when spring began. Most of our friends that came the night before didn't quite make it because they partied too much. But on that uh, day after our marriage, we went on our honeymoon 12 miles away to a hotel in, in Walnut, Iowa. And when we returned home, all of our friends were gathered around on straw bales watching one of our sows furring her litter. So one of these pigs, it seems, uh, was nominated to go to the locker in Atlantic. But our old 1953 international pickup was uh, not working that day. So we loaded the pig in the back of our fairly new Dodge caravan van and took it to town and the van has never been the same since and but one of its siblings uh, came to another end which was to be hung in a tree outside my parents house and stuck in the juggler vein to die and produce its blood for our sausage so we had a five-gallon canner underneath the, the hog to catch the blood. Uh, butchered the hog a little bit at the farm and then took the, the rest of the carcass to the neighbors who had a very nice processing operation in their basement. They had the uh, commercial-grade grinders and meat saws, slicers, and everything you would want to process a hog. So after we got the hog processed, we came back home and began to make the blood sausage. So in that, uh, the process was basically adding flour and spices to the blood. And if I remember correctly, we might have cooked it a little bit to make it congeal and then put it in, the, in cake pans and put it in the freezer. And thereafter, Denise tried a bite, and I think that was her last bite. And the rest of the, the containers were in the freezer, and I could take them out at my leisure, slice them up, fry them like you would a sausage patty, and eat them by myself. And we did cook these uh, brownies on our old heirloom 
cook stove from Harrisdale, who, which the cook stove belonged to my grandmother. And finally, Jean Drazel is the most prominent chiropractor in Stumptown, Iowa, a small burg near Free Martintown. Jean comes to us not with pork, but with walleye, an ice fishing story in northern Minnesota. There he learns a lesson that never leaves him the rest of his life. Long, long ago, 70 years about a long, long ago, I had an experience as a seven-year-old child that I've never forgotten in my life. Well, I take that back. I forgot for a few years until uh, well, we'll get to that later. But uh, this, was, this was a story about ice fishing. My experience with my grandfather was frightening. He was a, an immigrant, uh, son of an immigrant uh, Czech person from Bohemia. And uh, he scared me, quite frankly. You know, but he had some rather brusque ways of teaching things. Uh, I he would teach me how to how to swear, for instance, and stood a cry when I was young. And boy, was my mother disappointed by hearing that. You know, I'd practice my new cuss words with her, <laughs> and she she didn't think it was a bit humorous. And uh, anyway, you know, so. Uh, he had a postage stamp farm that was totally self-sufficient. They had ducks and geese and chickens and a pig or two. And, and it was just a glorious place to grow up. Twelve milk cows and uh, 40 acres. You know, I call a postage stamp farm nowadays. And uh, he, I got to go fishing up at his cabin in uh, northern Minnesota. And that was fun. That was warm weather fishing. He also introduced me <laughs> to to ice fishing. Well, that's a whole different story. And nor was I uh, uh, equipped with the proper clothing to be sitting out on a metal bucket on an ice uh, on a lake with uh, ice on it. And and uh, uh, you know it wasn't really pleasant. And and two times going ice fishing with him was more than enough by my standards. Well, one day he calls me up and said, Gene, would you like to go fishing up at, uh, near Brainerd at, at the cabin? And we're actually going to fish in an ice house out on Lake Mille Lacs, Minnesota. And I said, will we be in a shack, <laughs> like warm? He said, oh, of course, yeah. It's got a kerosene heater and, and uh, you can come spend the weekend with me and we'll go up and do it. Well, uh, <laughs> I didn't know that he was going to bring along, he was going to meet while he was up there with his neighbor that he had been fishing with for 15 or 20 years. We'll call him Otto. Quite frankly, I don't remember his his first name, but he had an accent. But, you know, in Minnesota, we have many different accents. (laughs) And uh, so I, I was I was. You know, I'm glad I kept my mouth shut at the time when he was asking me to do this because my immediate response was going to be, no way, Grandpa, I don't want to do that, freeze my butt off on the lake again. Of course, I wouldn't have said it that way to my grandfather uh, that I was taught to be very polite to. And uh, so when the day came, my mother said it was fine that I go with him up to the lake. And uh, 
we got up there in the late afternoon and it was it was getting dark pretty early in the and and in that period of time and so we met with otto and and uh, so there was going to be my grandfather me and otto so we drive the 10 miles to lake malax which is a huge lake and if you're not familiar with ice on lakes it is an extraordinary living entity as far as i can remember because you know lakes that big have a compression zone so the ice builds up along oh say 30 or 40 feet off the off the shore they have to build a sort of a wooden bridge across it because the ice keeps expanding and growing upward well you know that was a scary experience so here it's now dark pitch dark and we drive up across that wooden bridge and there's all kinds of creaks and groaning and uh, all this kind of stuff and i'm like quite frankly terrified but you know i'm also seven and i'm not going to show it no matter what and uh <laughs> it, and so we get we get out there oh and I, I should remind you it was 10 below zero out on a lake 40 miles long and 20 miles wide and and oh my goodness and the ice makes noise when you drive with it on vehicles and it always sounds like you're going to break through and in our rule growing up being out on ice in a vehicle is you always have to have the windows down because heaven help you if you ever go through the ice you're you know you're gonna you're gonna die because the water pressure won't allow you to open the doors or the windows and uh so but anyway with all the creaking and groaning and crunching and stuff that goes on even though the, the ice was plenty thick enough, uh, was was terrifying to me. So we get out to the ice house, and lo and behold, uh, I look up to the sky, and I have, I I don't know if it's because I had seizure disorder or what, but I went, I I couldn't not stop looking at the stars. It looks like you could reach them and pluck them out of the sky, and. And a little while later, my grandfather's hand comes out of the ice house, grabs him by the shoulder and drags me in. So, Gene, you're going to freeze to death out there. You know, and so finally I come back to consciousness, you know, and I just thought that was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I never saw that many stars seemingly that close. So we we get into the ice house, Otto and, and, and my grandfather, Joseph, and he. Uh, <laughs> He, you know, so then we light the kerosene stove. Well, I'm glad it was warm, but it was also smelly. You know, it's like, oh, my God, I'm breathing, I'm breathing <laughs> kerosene fumes. But anyway, it starts to warm the place up. I immediately trying to show how brave I was as, as a seven-year-old or eight-year-old. I think I was seven or eight years old, 1952 about. Uh, it, it, I... I well, let's put it this way. I, I, I said something I probably should have never said, and that's, I'll chisel the ice for you. And I chisel a hole in the ice. Well, I had to chisel two since there was two fishermen there, my grandpa and Otto. And, and so he hands me this, I, I think he said it was a re, remachined Model T axle. And, and so I got my hands around the then I was going to start chiseling this hole in the ice. And he says, no, wait a minute. 
and he ties a leather strap to me and to the steel bar. And I know what he's thinking. He's thinking I was going to throw that down in the bottom of the lake the last time when it goes through the ice <laughs> into the water. And I said, no, Grandpa, I'm not going to throw it down to the bottom of the lake. No, no, no. I'm, I'm tougher than that, or so I thought. And, uh, and uh, so he ties me to it, and I start chiseling. Well, what I didn't realize is how thick ice can get. We're talking like two and a half feet thick. <laughs> and so you get a fairly big hole at the top and it kind of gets smaller and smaller because you, you don't, you know, you don't want to have to keep cleaning that ice out of the, that broken ice out of the, out of the water hole. And, uh, and, uh, so finally, I, fi finally, I, I managed somehow way beyond my normal limit for, for heavy work, get, get the sound of the ice changes when you, when you start to get close to breaking through into the into the lake water itself, and <laughs> it's just um, what happened was I took an extra throw or extra lift on that iron pipe and heaved it down into the hole, and it went right through it and drug me right into the hole. And luck, if it had been any wide, if it had been any wider, I'd have gone to the bottom of the lake. And so here I am embarrassed beyond words that I just muffed up big time in front of these two elderly men. And for thank goodness for 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 their character, they didn't laugh at me. And and you know, to to this day I thanked them in my mind for not for not making fun of me. And uh so, but I, but I got my arm out of it, and of course I was wet up past my elbow, and uh, <laughs> and uh, I got the second hole dug out and got the ice out of it. Well, then my job, I I kind of realized at that moment that maybe I had been invited to be the workhorse. <laughs> I'm I'm not sure. They never admitted to it, but <laughs> anyway. So my next job was. A, a getting a, a coffee can full of water out of the hole in the ice and heating it on the stove to pour it down these two and a half foot deep holes to keep the little skiff of ice from forming at the bottom and heaven help you if you lose a fish you know and and based on just them getting off the hook because you didn't you know keep the hole clean at the bottom of the ice and <clears throat> excuse me and in the meantime, they're having so much fun. They're laughing and playing and singing and, and you know, just, uh, well, uh, yes, there was some imbibing going on, but they never acted drunk. And I, later they were telling me it was cognac and schnapps and all these kind of things they were drinking. And uh, they were telling tales and just having a good time. Well, in the, in the middle of this, I I have my stool leaned up in into the corner so I wouldn't fall into the hot stove and and lo and behold I go to sleep. Well, I don't know how long I was asleep, but the the interesting thing is that all of a sudden I woke up not because they were being noisy but because they were being silent. And I heard my grandfather speaking in a language that I never had heard, which turned out to be French, naming the different communities in France in World War I that 
that uh, the, the, the name of the community was the name of the trench. And my grandfather was a truck driver loading ammunition and uh, carrying it to the different trenches. Well, he got done in that language I didn't understand. And, and it was silent, silent for a long time. Now, to a seven-year-old, five minutes probably was like a year, you know, to my thinking. And uh, all of a sudden, Otto sits straight up and says, Joe, let me tell you what I did in World War I. I was a sniper for the Kaiser, and my job was to shoot ammunition deliveries to the trenches. Silence, silence, silence. Neither one of them moved. They were flickering in the lantern light. And I, and I, I, was, I was trying to figure out the implications of this. And suddenly, <laughs> Otto sits up even more directly and looks over at Joe, and they're both kind of flickering in the lantern light. And he said, Joe, I'm so thankful that I didn't kill you. Silence, silence for another seeming eternity. I mean, here's two guys that just admitted they could have killed each other, and one was supplying ammunition so the other could, you know, possibly kill you. And, uh, and, and uh, the silence went on for seemingly forever. I was trying to figure out what was going on. And then all of a sudden, they start laughing again and drinking more cognac and schnapps, and not another word was said about it. And I'm going, how is this possible that two guys can be together as fishing buddies for 15 or 20 years, and neither one of them know what the other did in the war? I never heard it spoke of at all in my grandfather's family. And nor did I ever hear him speak about it again. And, and, and I just, I, I never forgot that. And even though I was just seven years old, I, 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 I will never forget that. And here I am 70 years later talking about it, still talking about it. And uh, the, uh, it, you know, it, it had a lasting effect on me. But the interesting thing is, about 11 years later, I forget to sign up for the draft in my Minnesota, you know, town and, and county and uh, got fussed at severely. I thought they were going to put me in jail, you know, and then we, I finally signed up and like I was supposed to. And 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 lo and behold, my draft number was 11. Now. I want you to know that they drafted through the first 150 numbers. Where did that leave me? I wasn't sure. My first wife and I and my small kid, well, he was too young to, to, to be negotiating with us. I had decided that my choices were not wide, that there was very, since my church affiliation didn't say anything about being a pacifist or anything like that, I was, I was locked in. And so I, we started making plans to move to Canada. <laughs> and, and my first wife was, hey, you know, I'll do whatever. I mean, this is serious stuff. 
And, uh, and yet I was bound and determined. And that's when I remembered that night in that ice house in Minnesota. And that's, is that why I couldn't, I couldn't even think about killing another person? You know, it was like, it was so haunting to revisit that experience from seven, you know, as long time earlier. And, and yet, you know, it, it, it affected my whole life. And it turns out in the process of things, they didn't need my number 11, uh, draft draft number. Uh, the, uh, and, and I was four F besides that I had a damaged heart. <laughs> and, uh, so Anyway, I had spent two years angsting over what I was going to do. I'd finally decided I, you know, we'll go to Canada and and didn't need to, you know. So I, I was given a reprieve and uh, the, you know, that, that I became a, an anti-war person who claimed being a pacifist. Now, I don't know if I was you know, ever, ever approached and had to do it, how I would have decided. But I thought at that moment that I wasn't going to carry a gun no matter what. And, uh, and, and anyway, it, it's, it's, you know, I, I thank my grandfather for drinking cognac that night and telling all the story about, because as far as I know, he never told, he never said another thing about his war, uh, war uh, challenge. My father came along, and he was in the Civilian Conservation Corps. And he was, uh, uh, you know, as he as he left home, this is an interesting Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, uh, program. And uh, so the CCC were kids that built things and trails and bridges and and stuff like that. And their their most of their salary would be sent home. And uh, the uh, uh, this the, they would get an allowance, and uh, you know, and he was he was having the time of his life. It's the first time he had been away from home, and uh, he had been farmed out to different uncles and aunts uh, when his mom died in childbirth when he was ten years old. And uh, but anyway, so he he got uh, discharged from the CCC uh, based on his ability then to join up with the U.S. Army Air Corps in Panama Canal Zone. And that's where he spent his time. And ironically, his, his, his most important experience, I said, Dad, when were you happiest? And his, his, his response floored me. He said, being a cook in the Panama Canal Zone. Well, they were sent over there in wool uniforms, and I mean, it really wasn't a comfortable time. But he, and I said, "Well, why was it, Dad?" And he had the total opposite experience from my grandfather. He had the time of his life, and he said he couldn't go anywhere without being guarded by his men because he was making he was baking and cook, making turkeys and and stuffing and dressing and chicken and and. Uh, bohemian uh, bakery goods and he had the time of his life and you know that's just to point out how different his experience was from my grandfather's and i'm just real thankful that uh, that we uh that i that that i got to hear that 
So thank you. part of the Iowa Writers Collaborative, joining the ranks of Pulitzer Prize winner Art Cullen, Douglas Burns, Julie Gamak, Bob Leonard, Laura Bellin, and more fabulous writers. The Collaborative is a network of Substack pages, each writer in his or her own realm, but all linked together. I have created two Substack pages. On the first page, Mary Swander's Buggyland, you will get transcripts of Buggyland monologues and interviews, photos, and extra commentaries. On the second page, called Mary Swander's Emerging Voices, you will hear young, diverse voices comment on current topics. Please tune in and subscribe at substack.com, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. And that brings our episode to an end. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brew Ha Ha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Fremartentown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe and never miss a podcast. Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button. See you next time. Ruhaha. Free Martin Town's my favorite town in America. <laughs>